0: Over into chapter 22. And in this chapter, we continue with the moral laws that God gives to the children of Israel. And in giving these laws, he is uh, revealing his heart and his expectation of the people that he is shaping into a nation. We're going to see God's principles at work, his principles in everyday life situations. And by addressing the different situations, like I said, God is showing his expectations of their responsibility and their behavior towards Towards themselves, they're in their own property and towards their neighbors and the property of their neighbors. And so, as he's shaping this nation, he's putting these laws together to protect them, to organize them, and to cause them to always have their attention and their affection towards God. As you read through, of course, not every situation is covered, but you can see many of the situations that we they would encounter and also the guiding principles that will be able to be used in moments of judgment between parties. Also, in this chapter, there is the strong principle of restitution, where you're making wrongs right. Because God is a just God, the character, the character of God must be displayed in his people. They have to have justice and fairness towards. Towards one another. So let's start off with um, the first part of it, which is responsibility of propert- property. And like I said, you're going to see the theme of restitution, especially in cases of theft. And I want to read for you verse one, and it says this If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So one of the first things you're going to notice is that they don't have to go to jail or be stoned. The Mosaic Law did not um, specify that, but they must restore what they have taken um, from that person. And interestingly, if they do not have the money or they don't have the livestock to restore the vic- to the victim, of the crime, they become an indentured servant of that person. And you can see that the penalty for theft is between 500 and 200 percent, and so so it's important that they abstain from stealing from one another. Not only do they have to um, give to the people who they've stolen from, but best that they have to offer is what they are to give, what they are to restore unto that person. All right, so God is causing them to look at their responsibility as citizens of this nation and also how they are going to deal with one another based on um, the the moral law of God. And as we continue on from verses 16 to 31, we will see the moral and ceremonial principles. so the Lord is addressing different things that they have encountered as a people. And now he is putting his um, His guidelines and his parameters on that. So let's look at verse 16 and 17. And it says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. And I just pulled that out because even to the point of um, premarital sex, the Lord is concerned about it and gives them guidelines. And he, he ensures that there is no casual sex, no meaningless intercourse. Everything is connected to marriage and family. And so he gives the guidelines of what's supposed to happen if the people do not follow um, what his law is. And in verses 18 to 20, we see three capital crimes where the punishment is death. Number one is you shall not permit a sorceress to live. What is a sorceress? Well, uh, around, around that time, It's a person who would practice sorcery, whether it's dark or demonic powers that they're involved in, or they use different types of drugs to alter their state of mind. All of that and the occultist practices are not supposed to be found among the people of God. The second one is, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. So what we know is bestiality. Um, Yes, in the ancient world, it was practiced in some cultures, but God is commanding against it. Do not have that among you. There shall be no type of sexual relations between a person and an animal. And the third one we see is, he who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. So God has said with the commandments that there shall be no other gods beside him. They shall not make any um, any idols. And now he is making sure they understand you're not even supposed to sacrifice to any pagan god that you encounter. There shall be no worship of any other god except for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the seriousness of God's moral law. And as we continue through the chapter, we're going to see that there are laws concerning the compassion for strangers. Verse 21 says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So God is concerned with how they treat people who are not of um, the Israel nation, not who are not Israelites. And it's important because how we treat people is a good indicator of our character, of our morality. And especially with people we don't know, God is watching how we treat them. And also we see, uh, as he continues on, compassion for the weak and the vulnerable. So there's compassion for the strangers amongst them, and there's compassion for the weak and the vulnerable. And it is recorded in verses 22 to 24. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry it all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. So this is what the Lord is saying concerning people who are, who are widow and they are dependent on others to survive and the fatherless, because in that society is the males who brought in uh, the finances and were really the protectors of the family. And God is so concerned about, uh, especially widow and fatherless children, because later on in the scripture, he talks about his relationship to them and how he is a father to them. And he expects his people to treat them well. And as we continue on, there are laws regarding holiness and separation unto God. And it is written, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So you're not supposed to revile evil things or mock God. And also any leader that is set up among them, they shall only bless that person. Uh, Verse 29 says this, You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe products and your juices, the firstborn of your sons, you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. This has to do with consecration, how the first of everything is set apart for God. These laws that are that God is giving is to show them how they're going to be sti- distinct in the different cultures that they will encounter. That whatever land that they're in as they journey through, how they are going to be consecrated unto God, holy, set apart, and and how their worship is supposed to revolve around God and God alone. I tell you, we could take that principle for our lives today. How do we give to God? How do we um, interact with God? How is our relationship with God? Do we see God as first and central and deserving of the best of us, the best of our time, the best of our resources? This is a principle that was set in the nation of Israel, and I believe it continues on because Jesus Jesus was God's best to us, is given to us as a gift, and we are to honor God by giving God the best of us, giving him what he is deserving of. All right. And so we're moving over to chapter 23. We continue with the laws, we continue with the, the guidelines. And in this chapter, it starts off by talking about how you display justice for everyone. So the first section, I want to read verse one, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Oh, my goodness, God is making sure that everybody is treated fairly. Even the poor were sometimes not treated fairly. The rich get that advantage over them. And he's also giving them guidelines of how they are to walk in community. And God is very clear in this because he knows that they will be living amongst people who are not following God. And especially as they go into other cultures or the other cultures of other people, Come to where they are, then listen, it's going to be easy to follow the ways of the world. But he has given them these guidelines so that they would remain um, wholly onto him and set apart for his work. And we continue on because he shows that even if they did not like a specific person or a specific group, that did not determine how they tr- treated them. It doesn't determine their right and wrong behavior. God sets the standards and they have to obey the standards and use these principles of justice and restitution and equity and fairness toward, as, to treat other people. And that's an important part for us because justice should be above our feelings. We should do what is right because it is what God requires of us. Even if we don't feel that we're, that we are getting the better end of the stick, right? We must align with God's ways because God's ways are based based on truth. All right. So we continue on in in verses 10 to 13. It talks about the law of Sabbaths. And this is a theme that comes up a lot in the forming of this nation, this idea of rest. And in verse 10 it says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Verses fourteen to nineteen talks about three annual feasts that the uh, uh, the Israelites will have each year, and the first one is the feast of unleavened bread, where he says, "You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of, month of Abib, for it is in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty." And then the second feast was the feast of harvest, where the first fruits of their labors, which they have sown in the the field. And the third feast is the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when they have gathered in the fruit of of their labors from the field. So these three feasts are when the people were supposed to come and present themselves before the Lord. All right, so we're working through the chapter and further on verses 20 to 27, it talks about the angel and the promises God has made to the Israelites. So what are these promises? Well, let me read to you from verse 20 to 22 to give you an understanding of the Lord's guidance, his protection, and his leadership. And it says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey, if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, that I will be, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. One of the things that the Lord says is because his name is in this angel, and there are different theologians who say that this angel was actually uh, a manifestation of God in the sense of the pre-incarnate Christ, and he was re- he was given by God to guide the people in their journey and Not only is his name in him, but also he says um, if they provoke him, he will not pardon their transgressions. So this angel is important and he is the one who will guide them in the way that they should go. Through the different things that God will do in their lives and um, in the battles that they will fight, people will actually be afraid of the Israelites and many of them will not attack the Israelites because of God's hand at work in their midst. All right. And also God says, listen, I'm going to bring you to where you're supposed to be. You have the angel before you. I'm going to cause your enemies to be afraid of you and I'm going to cause you to to capture the land of Canaan, but the enemies will be driven out little by little not all at once and there's a purpose for that of course we would love to say yeah just go in and let all them the the enemies be gone at one shot and Israel just have the land how for our own lives we would love to say God we're just going to walk into that opportunity into that business and that family no problems because you're with us and just have us to have victory from the get-go but the Lord knows the strategy that he is using and he knows that if he does it all at once, it will be to our detriment. So we must trust God's strategies and know that he always has a good reason for why he does what he does. Even if we would like him to move faster, <laughs> do it more quickly, do it all at once. And we have seen even with the, um, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, he could have done it in one shot. But of course, we would not have had the record we have today. We would not have seen Pharaoh's armies drowning in the sea. We would not have seen the Israelites come out with all of the gold and the the jewels and everything they came out with. And we would not have the, the account of how God moved so mightily that has been told down the ages. So that's twenty three and we are going to go into twenty four after the Lord shares about the boundaries of the inheritance. Listen, as we go through one of the things you'll see about God he is he's so detailed, and he does not leave them in ignorance as to what. They are to do what he expects of them, and also what is theirs because of what he has promised. God has given them that, so they have something to hold on to. And as they walk it out, they will be able to see the faithfulness of who God is. So chapter 24. At the beginning, Israel is, they're affirming the covenant. Moses comes down and he tells the people the words of the Lord, the laws that he has given, the commands that he has given. And the people reply all the words which the Lord said we will do. And that's important. I believe that it's going to cause the Lord to re- release the rest, but also hold them accountable because they said that they will do it. So let's read a little bit from verses four. I might go to about eight and it says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood and sprinkled it on the altar." Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, once again, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. This is key. Okay, this is key. Verse eight. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Uh, Everything the Lord has spoken to Moses, he wrote it down. And um, you can see right there how his training in Egypt came to the forefront with his ability to write. This is not a light promise. This is not um, a very quick thing. This is very important. Why? Because it involves the blood. And we will see some refer to it as a scarlet thread that is interwoven through the pages of the Bible, coming all the way up to Jesus who shed his blood for us. How this blood, this covenant, is sealed in the blood. And why this is so important? Because um, it shows that the animal who died for this sacrifice, their death was um, accepted as the a, as a substitution for a sinner's behavior. Because the penalty of sin is death. And in their instance, they would have been forgiven, but that would have been temporary. When Jesus did it, that was for all time. Moses goes up to the mountain with Aaron and Adab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. And they they see the, the Lord there. They see God there. And the description of what they see, I want to read it to you from verse 10 And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, as it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Now, you see how beautiful that description is? God allowed them to see this glimpse into um, his residence, I'll say, in heaven, so that they would have that, not only that picture, the visualization, but they will also know that they have indeed encountered the true and the living God. Carries on in verse 13, Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. So we see Joshua again with Moses. Verse 16 says, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What a sight. Can you imagine what that looked like and how that felt for Moses to go up into that cloud where the presence of the Lord was, um, was extremely manifest? And as we go over in 25, it starts off with, the Lord speaking to Moses in that place. And he says, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. I got to just pause there for a moment because God is about to give him instructions for the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. On the earth, and not just a dwelling place as like a mountain, but a mobile dwelling place. That as he leads the Israelites to so different places, they would be able to take the tabernacle. His the construction of it made it mobile, um, so that he will always be in the midst of the people wherever they are. But here he says he's going to build it from what they are going to bring to him. And remember, they came out of Egypt with the wealth of the Egyptians. Um, but also, they have to give it willingly. So the, the creation of the tabernacle comes from love. comes from willingness to honor and serve God. And that is very, very important. You cannot build a place for God to dwell that is out of grudge out of like something that you don't want to happen so he made sure that they would have to give they spoiled the egyptians and now it's like a testing of their heart to see if they would really give to the lord generously especially after he has just done so much for them and he has given so much to them you're going to have to see blue you're gonna see purple. Uh, so these are dyes. Now it's not dyes like we can just go into the grocery store today and buy. Now these came from animals and from different plants. He also wants to dye for scarlet. He's also gonna, uh, they're gonna make fine linen. Um, he's, he's gonna ask for goat hair and ram skins and badger skins, acacia wood. Oil for light, spices for the anointing oil and sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the different instruments that they're going to make. So it's it's beautiful things he's asking for, but he's made sure that they would have it to be able to give. And like I said, this tabernacle was not a, t- a permanent dwelling place. It was not gonna be made with stones and mortar and brick. It was a tent that would be mobile. And so the first um, item that God gives instructions about from verses 10 to 22 is the Ark of the Testimony. And later on, it will be called the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the most important item in all of the tabernacle and it was supposed to be modeled after the very throne of God in heaven. So this tabernacle is supposed to really represent the heavenly throne room of God, the heavenly residence of God. what they see in heaven must be created on earth in in the forms that God will instruct. So when I say an ark you may go back to Noah this is not a boat <laughs> this is a box and it was made of a cassia wood and um, a very strong wood and overlaid with gold and its dimensions were 3 feet 9 inches long 2 feet 3 inches wide and 2 feet 3 inches high so it's a substantial size. Now this ark did not have handles because they were not supposed to touch the ark at all. Rather in the instructions um, God gives to Moses he talks about rings of gold attached to the bottom and poles of wood overlaid with gold and they the poles were supposed to stay in the rings at all times and the only how the priests were able to move the ark is by touching the poles. No one is supposed to touch the ark. And in this ark um, God would instruct Moses to put in the, the the testimony that is the copy of the law that he is giving. And later on he's going to be including more things like uh, the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that buds and the tablets of the covenant. So there's a couple more things that will be added to it. Now that's the box that they're creating. And the next part of that box is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is kind of like a lid where there are two cherubims constructed and they're facing each other and their wings go over and touch. And this is supposed to be made out of pure gold. And this is where God would come down and meet with the, the high priest. So this is the place where God would dwell and that would go on top of the ark. And that was a holy place. Okay. So it's a beautiful box, beautiful lid with the, with the cherubim and remember the poles and um, the rings at the bottom to carry it. Another item that God gives instructions to Moses to build. So the table of showbread we see in verses 20 to 30. This table was to be made of a wood overlaid with gold. It was three feet, one, um, three feet long, one foot six inches wide and two feet three inches high. And this table also was supposed to have rings at the bottom and poles to carry it. And everything that was supposed to be used with it, all of his dishes and the pans and everything were to be made out of pure gold. The best of the best. And verse 30 says, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So on this table would have the showbread and uh, there would be 12 loaves to show bread, and this for the priests would be eaten before the face of God. And of course, like the 12, the 12 cakes or or breads were represents of the 12 tribes. Um, it was made of a fine flour, set on the table and sprinkled with frankincense, and once a week the bread would be replaced. And like I said, only the priests could uh, really eat the bread. So we have the ark, we have the mercy seat, we have the table of showbread, and the last thing he speaks about in this chapter is the gold lampstand, verses 31 to 40. So this lampstand was hammered out of pure gold. I don't have all the dimensions for you, it doesn't really say, but visually it looks like, you know the modern day menorah that is used? There would have been a middle shaft with three branches coming out of each side for a a total of seven places for lamps. And of course it would have used pure oil, and different things, pure oil to to ensure that the light is always on. And it talks about the almond blossom being the shape in which it is constructed for the lamps on the top. So let me read a little bit about this, this lamp. And verses 37 says, you shall make seven lamps for it And they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and the tray shall be made of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Over and over again, as the Lord is giving these instructions to Moses, he lets him know according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. According to the pattern which I show you. So everything has to be made specific to God's instructions. Because listen, this is not for people to dwell in. This is for God to dwell in. So it has to be made exactly exactly how he wants it to be. He wants to make sure that they fo- Moses follows his instructions ca- carefully and closely. And in the tent, as, as we go on, you will recognize there are no windows, there are no openings. The only source of light would have been this lampstand that I just described. So we're coming to the end of our session of this grouping of chapters in Exodus. and going to chapter 26. God gives the instructions for the the instruments or the elements that are going to be inside the tabernacle. And now he's talking about the actual construction of the tabernacle. And I got to say this, like if God has given such detail about his dwelling place, which he knows is not going to be forever on this earth, because after the tabernacle, there will be the temple and then the temple will be desecrated. And, and but God doesn't change. God doesn't go anywhere. So how much more will God give details concerning your life and how you should be built and how you should develop and how you should grow as his child? God is concerned in the details and I thank God for his grace. So when we don't always get it right, he always knows the blueprint that we are to return to So let's talk a little bit about the tabernacle. And it's just a series of layers, of um, coverings, of cloth, and it's very well protected, very well protected. And also a lot of wisdom goes into what God has asked for. So the first part talks about the fine linen curtain. From verse one, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread. And with artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. So the first part, the first layer is going to have fine linen curtains of the best Kind, and it, it goes on to talk about how they're to be constructed. It's going to be um, brought together. It's not even sewn all the curtains, but it's joined by a system of loops on the fabric and gold clasps to link the loops from one set of five curtains to the other set of five curtains. So then you have the the linen curtain, and then on top of that you have the curtain of goat's hair, explained in verses seven to thirteen. So this is a very thick material and the different s- set of strips that he instructed to be cr- created they were joined together with a series of loops and bronze not gold bronze clasps the inner cu- curtain the linen one had gold clasp but now we're seeing bronze so on top of that okay we're going up in layers then we see the ram skin dyed red and then also badger skin now, I want to just touch very quickly about the badger skin because that was very durable and also water resistant. And I just love that, that God so put things together that even as the tabernacle is outside, there will be rain, okay? <laughs> there will be the elements and he makes sure that they everything on the inside will be protected. I thank God for that. Just shows me his attention to detail, you know, things that we may not think of, God does. So that is the next um, layer on top. And then he continues on talking about the framing of the system. So all of these different, the curtain, the skins, and all of that go on top of a frame. He talks about the boards for the sides of the tent and their their dimensions. They were 50 feet high and two feet wide. And the boards were joined together with the different tabs with rings and um, the ring the bars ran through the rings and kept everything together now every board rested on two sockets of silver okay now let me explain to you how heavy that would have been so the sockets of silver that each each board is resting on is 264 pounds of pure silver. God is giving Moses all of these instructions. He's giving him the outline of how everything is supposed to come together. And I'm sure he would have had a vision of what it's supposed to look like. And he was supposed to follow those instructions to a T. Where we're going to end off here is that it talks about the veil and the screen. These are the, the, the veils that cover the entrance to the different portions of the tabernacle. So let me read verses 31 to 33 for you. It says, You shall make a veil of woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And it says, you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So the the veil he's talking about separated the tent into two compartments. And the first part was the holy place, which was the large room, and it had the table of showbread. It had the lampstand. It has the altar of incense, which we're going to learn about in more in the next few chapters. And the second part of the uh, the tent or the tabernacle was called the most holy place, and it had the ark of the covenant in it. It was a much smaller room, and the high priest could actually only go into that room once a year. There is that barrier, that veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And I know it's a little bit early little bit early. in our study, but I just want to let you know that when it talks about later on that when Jesus died the veil in the temple was torn into two, this is the veil that they're describing. This veil between the holy place and the most holy place, that was torn into two, giving access. I mean, I can't wait till we get to that time so we can go a little bit deeper into what that access means. So let's go to verses 34, 35, and it says, You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lamp sent across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. Visually, the tent opened up from the east side. You can just see that this is going to be something that is spectacular. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the embroidery, the all the different types of um, layers of curtain. It is really sig- significant and all points to the brilliance of God, the majesty of God, and his desire to create a way in which his people could actually have his presence in their midst. So as we wrap up, we're looking at some of the main themes that we see in these chapters. We see, of course, moral laws and instructions. God is shaping his people, giving giving them his expectation and how he wants them to live and what their responsibility is towards him, towards themselves and towards each other. We also see the theme of obedience. God wants his people to obey him, whether they feel like it or not whether they understand or not, to obey Him. And that goes for us today, okay? That still applies. We see the the idea of covenant, how all of this is coming because of the covenant God made with Abraham, confirming Isaac and Jacob. Lastly, dwelling. God always wants to abide with His people. He always wants to dwell with His people. In the Old Testament, it was in the most holy place. In, in, In the New Testament, it's in Jesus' but God always wants to be where his people are because he understands that he is what makes the difference in our lives. So as we wrap up today's session, my goodness, it has been a little bit of a marathon, but I'm so glad that you stuck with me because we are really getting into some of the things that we, we've we heard about before, or mentioned, but may not understand the totality of it or how things fit together. So, you know, take a deep breath and let's keep going because there's so much power in not knowing who God is and what he has done for his people. We want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, share the message and invite others to journey with you as we go through the Bible. We invite you to partner with us, definitely in prayer, and also send your questions and your comments because we want to hear from you. And if you want to a, a, give a financial blessing or a financial gift, to this work trust me there are ways for you to do it we are stronger together all right so as you go be blessed i look forward to connecting with you next week as we go into the final chapters of the book of exodus all right have a wonderful day dr michelle signing off until we meet again